uh, Acts 27, approaching the end of Acts. We've got a, this is a huge section today that we're going to kind of blow through. Uh, Paul's been in captivity or under house arrest. He hasn't been in captivity. House arrest for a couple of years in Caesarea. Now he's headed to Rome because he's made his appeal to Caesar, so he wants his trial heard before Nero. And uh, what we're going to look at today is this long boat ride, Paul, from Caesarea uh, to Rome. I'm not a sailor, and there's all kinds of nautical stuff in here, and I'm just going to skip it. I'm going to blow right past it. If you're a sailor, I'd, and don't come tell me after. I had several people after come explain the sailing to me, and I, I don't have it. So um, don't. You can just don't. So here's, if, you, if you're a sailor, you read that book. The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. It's the authoritative work on this journey. It was written in 1848. So uh, you can look at that website. The original version's in the public domain. That book on the right is a reprint from 1978. You can get it off of Amazon if you're, if you want. And the, the guy who did it, James Smith, was a yachtsman and a New Testament scholar. And so he walks through everything we're about to read and paints a great picture, and again, if that's your world, then I would invite you uh, to dive in. It is not mine. That was bad, and I'm not a pun guy either, but it was already halfway out of my mouth, and I didn't feel like I could pull it back. (laughs) Acts 27, verse 1, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus of Macedonium from Thessalonica was with us. So these are the, this is a we passage. You see that in Acts. It means Luke is an eyewitness. He's not reporting somebody else's story. He's back on the scene. We don't know where he's been for the past couple of years, most likely hanging around in Caesarea while Paul was there. So this boat is a private boat, and they put, uh, Julius, who was a centurion, so he was over a hundred soldiers. There were not a hundred soldiers with him, but there was a group of soldiers. There's a group of prisoners. They put them on a private boat. Luke and Aristarchus, who was another companion of Paul that you see mentioned uh, two or three times in the New Testament, would have paid their own way to ride on the boat as well. I forgot to mention this. On the back of that um, outline sheet you have, there's a map. You can follow along because I'm about to read a whole bunch of places that I can't pronounce and that you don't know. And you can just follow along on that map if you like, if that helps you. Um, if you can't see it, you might need some glasses. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. So there was a church in Sidon, and Julius let Paul go, uh, provide for his needs. So it was normal if you rode a boat that, that you would bring your own food. So they gave him the food that he needed for the trip. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we'd sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So we put him on a much bigger boat sailing from Egypt to Rome or Egypt to Italy uh, carrying grain. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off of Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous, 
and bring great loss to ship and cargo and into our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So they're at a decision point. They get on this new boat. They start traveling. Um, from mid-September to mid-November, it was dangerous to sail. From mid-November all the way through to the beginning of February, you couldn't sail. Nobody did. So they're in that window. The Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippur. You've probably heard of that. Late September, early October. So we're sometime in that dangerous season of sailing. And Paul says we don't need to do this. It's amazing as a prisoner he has any voice at all. But Julius, who's the ranking person on the ship, even though it's not his boat, but he is the ranking person on the ship. It's his decision. And he listens to the pilot. And the owner. So they're trying to get their cargo to Rome. And if they don't keep going, they're going to have to stop someplace for the whole winter for three months. So they're going to lose a lot of time and they're going to lose a lot of money. And they say, we're already behind schedule. We've got to keep going. It looks like they take some kind of vote because it says the majority of the sailors say, let's keep going. And so they keep going. We'll see how that works out. When a gentle south wind began to blow... They saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. So uh, no motors, you get that. These are old, ancient wooden boats. They, don't have any, they can't do anything in a storm except roll with it. They don't have, there's nothing else that they can do. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchors and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. So that's a big deal. You're bringing grain. That's your job, and you're throwing it overboard. You're throwing money away. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Nobody had a compass, so if you can't see the sky, you don't have a clue where you are. You can imagine how scary that would be. After they'd gone a long time without food, that's not because they didn't have food. It's the idea of um, they they lost their appetite. If you've ever been on a boat when it's getting tossed around, you don't want to eat. Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail to Crete or from Crete. He's saying, I told you so. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Read that again. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, 
Unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. So the picture there, you've got sailors, you've got soldiers, and you've got prisoners all in the same boat. So the sailors say, hey, we're getting close to land. We can use this lifeboat and we can get to safety. Paul says, if the sailors leave, then the rest of y'all are going to die because there's nobody here who knows how to steer this ship. So he says to the soldiers, this is what the sailors are trying to do, and the soldiers cut the lifeboat so the sailors can't leave. You get that? So we got to keep the sailors on board because if they leave, we don't have anybody that can manage this ship. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. The last 14 days you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. That almost sounds like communion terminology, doesn't it? Took some bread, gave thanks to God, broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea at the same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck, struck, excuse me, stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and go to land. The rest were to get on their planks or on other pieces of the ship. And this way everyone reached land safely. So the ship is stuck in a sandbar. It's getting beaten by waves. It's breaking apart. Easy for prisoners to escape. If a prisoner escapes, the soldier who was responsible for him is held accountable and could be killed. So the soldiers say, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. We're going to kill these prisoners. And Julius steps in and says, no, we need to keep Paul alive. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. It's been a great couple of weeks for him. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, so you can picture that, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his house, showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They'd honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Next week we'll look. It's three months. They spend three months on the island. Then we'll look at Paul getting to Rome. So as you read that, a couple of things jump out at me. One, God protects Paul. Protects him through a storm. He protects him from a snake bite. Think metaphorically for your own life. So Paul is not making any of his own decisions at this point. He's a prisoner, uh, literally, and he's a, a 
prisoner figuratively. Whatever those guys decide, that's what, that's what he does. He doesn't want to keep sailing. He says it doesn't make any sense. They do it anyway. He's got to live with the consequences of that. Maybe you're in a spot like that today. Maybe there's something, again, metaphorically, there's a storm in your life, and it's not your fault. You're reaping what other people have sown. You're facing the consequences of other people's decisions. Take heart from Paul. God is able to protect you. When they figure out where they are, they're 475 miles away. They've been blown 475 miles by this storm, and they're on course. They're just south of Rome, which is where they were headed in the first place. They haven't been able to steer. They haven't been able to see for two weeks, and God's got them right where they need to be. I hope that encourages you as you think about your own life. If you would say this morning, I'm in a storm, and honestly, it's not even my fault. It's other people are making choices, and because I'm connected to them, I'm, I'm reaping the consequences, and it's not good. Take heart from Paul. God is able to see you through. He's able to protect you. He's said to Paul, you're going to get to Rome, and he's getting him to Rome using a storm to get him there. He lands on this island. It seems like everything's okay. Snakes are sluggish in the winter. The heat of the fire warm, revives this snake, and it bites Paul, like literally snake bit. Just got out of a, just survived a shipwreck only to get bitten by a snake. And God preserves his life. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel snake bit. You feel like you can't catch a break. You feel like uh, every time you take a step forward, you get knocked down. Bad things continue to happen. You call it bad luck or whatever. But you feel that way. You can't catch a break. You can't get ahead. God is able to preserve you as well. He keeps Paul. In the midst of that, he heals. There's no ill effects. He either heals him or he just keeps the, 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 the poison from having any effect on Paul. But it doesn't bother him. He just shakes the snake off and he keeps on going. If you would say this morning, I'm in a storm. If you would say this morning, I feel snake bit. Acts 27 and 28 would say to you, don't lose hope. God can protect you. God will protect you. He will see you through and he will preserve your life. He's going to get you where he wants you to go. The other thing I was thinking about as I read this was Paul's influence on the guys on the ship. He knew Luke. He knew Aristarchus. He didn't know anybody else. So of the 275 other guys, he didn't know 273 of them. He had a profound impact on their life in a very brief period of time. Jesus calls us salt and light. Those are identity statements. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. It's who you are if you're following him. It's not what you do. It's who you are. You are. Those are identity statements again. We're all, we all have influence in the places where God has put us. We have influence on the people in our lives. Think of influence as the capacity to affect other people's choices, the capacity to affect the, your surroundings or the environment that you're in. All of you who are following Jesus, you have influence. You are salt and you are light. We see from Paul that he influences this ship in a, a very brief period of time. There's no speeches here, no sermons. There's no miracles in chapter 27. There are in chapter 28. There's no miracles in chapter 27. We're focusing on the boat now. Through his words, through his actions, through his presence, Paul has a profound impact on the situation and on the people in this boat. His words. He only says four things in however many weeks. That four things get recorded. That's it. He speaks wisdom. He speaks revelation. He speaks encouragement. If you're someone who's following Jesus this morning, your words. People here, I think it's 20,000 words a day. Don't add to the noise. 
you're wonderful, at some point, opinions, there's too many. Wisdom, revelation, encouragement, that's life. Those words stand out. Those words have impact. If you're following Jesus, you have, you're connected to the source of all three of those things. Wisdom, when Paul says, don't, don't sail. He's already been in three shipwrecks in his life. He knows what he's talking about. He said, I spent a whole day and a night in the open sea. Don't, just don't. This is not a good time. We're in the dangerous season. It's not going to go well for us. That's just wisdom. He's speaking from his experience. Think of wisdom as holy common sense. When he says, sailors, he says to the soldiers, don't let the sailors leave. That just makes it's common sense. If the guys that know how to steer the ship jump, then the rest of y'all are going to die. Side note, notice what Paul says there. He uses a second person plural. Y'all are going to die. He doesn't say we're going to die. Y'all are going to die. He knows God's going to keep him. God's promised him. You're going to get to Rome. So he's not worried about it. I don't know what he's thinking is going to happen, but he's not putting himself in the group with the people who are going to die. That's for certain. That's just wisdom. So for us, think of wisdom, again, as holy common sense. Think of it not just as experience, because then those of you who are young say, well, I can't have any. It's not true. Wisdom is a biblical perspective. It's biblical insight. It helps you know how most of the time. That's the question you're answering. How? How do I do this? You need wisdom. There's a spiritual gift, the word of wisdom in 1 Corinthians 12. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, again, just kind of this this, uh, holy common sense that's cultivated by reading the Bible. So any of you, regardless of age, can grow in wisdom by reading the word. And just because you get older doesn't mean you get wiser at all if you're not spending time in the word. This is the source of wisdom for us. And as you read it, it will begin to shape your perspective There's a thousand opinions. Most of them are ridiculous. You bring a perspective from the Bible, an eternal perspective. People will take notice. And it is so needed. Some of you live in a world of crisis. It's either you choose to get involved in the everybody's hairs on fire world of politics or your job may be or a large part of your life may be dealing with people who are in crisis. Some of you, that's just as a parent, your kids are coming to you and they're constantly in crisis. You need wisdom. There's tons of books and they're great and they're blogs and they're great and they're CDs and they're great and DVDs, all that. That's fine. Bible's better than all of it. Wisdom. You can gain it by spending time in the Word. Revelation, that's information that you wouldn't know unless God showed you. It's divine insight. When Paul, as their ship is sinking... They're in the middle of a storm. They haven't seen the sun or the sky in days. And he says, hey, we're going to be okay. That's That's revelation or it's wrong. There's no reason for Paul to think that. But an angel of the Lord appears to him in the night and says, Paul, you must get to Rome. You must preach before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of everyone on this ship. That's revelation. Revelation a lot of times answers the what. Not all the time, but a lot of time. If wisdom is how, revelation is what. We say all the time that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. You're one of Jesus' sheep. And according to John 10, his sheep know his voice so you can hear the voice of God. That has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with how long you've been walking with the Lord. The moment you say yes to Jesus, his spirit takes uh, up residence within you. Gives you ears to hear what God is saying. You've become one of Jesus' sheep at that point. 
and you can hear his voice? Are you cultivating a heart that can hear him? You want to walk in revelation. You want to change an atmosphere. Cultivate a heart that can hear the Lord. That's sensitive to what he's saying to you. Encouragement. Everybody needs it. Pats on the back are great. Attaboys are great. This is way better. When Paul says, y'all, can, y'all need to eat, you need to eat to survive, it says the people are encouraged by that. He's lifting them up, he's building them up, he's pulling them up. Encouragement in the biblical sense is being able to see the truth about who someone is and you relate to them that way, not based on how they are at this point. Think back to Gideon in Judges, I think it's 6. An angel appears to him and says, Gideon, you're a mighty warrior Why Gideon's hiding in a wine press because he's scared of the bad guys. He's scared of the Midianites. And an angel appears and says, you're a mighty warrior. And he's not. He's not even close. He's a chicken. But what the angel sees is who Gideon is in the Lord, who he can be. And that's how he addresses him. People need that. They need somebody who can see beneath, who can see through, who can see the truth of what's in their heart and can begin to address them accordingly. People need someone in the midst of a situation who can say, here's some perspective. Let me give you some encouragement about what's happening here. I know it all. It looks terrible. We're in this boat. We don't have a compass. We're taking on water. Literally, we're going to be okay. Get something to eat because we're going to survive. You're going to need your strength. We're not on a death march here. That's encouragement to people. You have access to the Spirit of God. You have access to the Word of God. You can be a person, man or a woman, who speaks words of wisdom, words of revelation, and words of encouragement. You want to have influence, you start talking that way. It changes everything. You don't have to sound holy and self-righteous, and you don't need to use any weird King James words. You just be who you are, and you allow, you listen to the Lord. You be who you are and you get the word in you. You be who you are and you see the truth of who people are and you begin to say those things. You'll change situations. Paul also, actions, real quick, you know actions affect. He just eats. That's all he does. He eats. But it's, a, it's an act of faith for him. It's a demonstration of the fact that he says, yes, we're going to be okay and I'm going to go first. I'm going to eat to show you that everything's going to be okay. And it says the men are encouraged because Paul told them to eat and then he ate. Something that simple. You don't have to be grand acts. You don't have to have a big platform. Acts of service, demonstrations of your faith, those things have influence. The last one, and this is where I want to spend some time because we miss it. Presence. Paul's presence on the ship saves 275 men. Those men are saved because Paul is there. Then angel appears to him and says, Paul, you must, you must get to Caesar. And God has graciously given you all of these men. Y'all remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's in Genesis 18. Wicked, wicked cities, proverbially so. God's going to destroy them. It says the wickedness has risen up to God, an outcry about these cities. And so he's come down to see if it's as bad as everybody says. And he says, I'm going to bring Abraham into the mix and let him know what I'm doing because he's one of my friends. I'm going to make a great nation out of him. So he says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, whose nephew Lot and his family live in Sodom, says, God, you're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. You wouldn't do that. There's 50 righteous people. You're not going to destroy the city. And God says, no, of course not. There's 50 righteous people. For the sake of those 50, I won't destroy the city. 
Then Abraham begins this negotiation. It's a fascinating passage. What if there's 45 people? Then I won't. What if there's 40? Then I won't. What if there's 30? Then I won't. What if there's 20? Then I won't. God, what if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom? You won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And God says this, for the sake of the 10, for the sake of the righteous, I won't destroy a city. Think about that. There's not a, find a city named Sodom. There's not one. Nobody names their town after that place. That's how wicked it is. Nobody wants to be associated with that place. And God says, as wicked as that is, you give me ten righteous people, I'll save the whole city. That's not a majority. That's not 50% plus one. That's just ten people. You think about where you live, where you go to school, where you go to work. You think about our city, our county. And I don't know how you perceive those things in terms of their spiritual atmosphere. I don't know if you get hopeless and say, think things are never going to change. God needs ten. That's it. On a boat, he needs one. And he saves 275. That's it. The math doesn't make sense. The city is so wicked, and you're saying, all I need is ten who are righteous, and I'll save the city. For us, if you're, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Psalm 139, there's nowhere you can go where God is not. In the Old Testament, the picture of God um, filling the temple, it's a cloud that fills this little bitty room called the Holy of Holies. And they can see it. They can see the glory of God coming in a cloud and filling this room. God is everywhere, but he's really in this little square that is the holy of holies and the new testament guess who that is you you're the temple of god your heart is the holy of holies when you become a christian the holy spirit takes up residence within you god is everywhere but he's really in you in a different way god is already everywhere you go but when you go you bring him with you if you can hear that you're a carrier of the presence of god second corinthians 4 says you we carry within us this this treasure we have broken vessels. We carry around with us the life and the death of Jesus. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, God's everywhere. But when you show up somewhere as a Christian, you're bringing God with you, if you can hear that. Second Corinthians 3 talks about Moses and the glory of God, and he keeps a veil over his face. Because when he sees God, his, God's, his, his face changes. Moses' face changes because he's reflecting the glory of God, but it fades over time because it's this one time or this sporadic encounter. And Paul says we don't have to wear a veil because the glory in us doesn't fade. He says we are therefore very bold. Do you realize men and women? The weight that you carry. The Old Testament word for glory is heaviness. You leave footprints everywhere you go spiritually. If you're a Christian... It's who you are. It takes ten righteous people. It takes one man on a boat. As you think about wherever it is that you live and move and have your being, is it dark? You're one who can change it just by being there, by carrying the presence of Jesus into those settings. Just a silly illustration. Kim's going to turn the lights off. I hope you're not afraid of the dark. Teenagers, keep your hands up. We can see them. I don't know where you are. I don't know how this feels for you. What's the place that feels spiritually dark to you? 
where you live. Is it your school? I hope it's not your home. Is it your home? Your work? Is it when you think about our city or our country? What makes you feel like this? Psalm 139, God's already there. There's nowhere that he's not. That's not what we're saying. There are places where he's not honored, where he's not obeyed, where he's not blessed. This is, what do we say? It feels dark there. That's what we say. Even though intellectually we know God is everywhere. And all it takes, you as a Christian, you're this. You're the light of the world. And so that's it. One, that's it. It's one person on a boat. It's ten people in a city. Light can't help but influence. Light overcomes darkness is what it does. Darkness never wins if there's light in the room. That, this is what you carry with you. Everywhere that you go, these are, the, this is your, these are the footprints that you're leaving. You can't help but do so unless you're choosing to veil the glory within you. It's not about you're not a lucky rabbit's foot. You're not better than anybody else. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you carry around with you eternity. You carry around with you somehow the infinite. You carry around with you the holiness and the presence of God. The power of the one who raised him from the dead lives within you. And so everywhere you go, that power is with you. You can't help but have an influence. We just don't recognize it. You can turn the lights back on, please. You just don't recognize it. I don't recognize it. We feel insignificant. We believe a lie that we don't matter. We say it will never change. We say there's not enough. Whatever those things are, none of it's true. None of it's true. Another story of a guy on a boat, Jonah, prophet of God, called to Nineveh. Wicked, wicked city, enemy of Israel. Jonah doesn't want to go. He runs literally the opposite direction, gets on a boat. And as he's going, God sends a storm to get Jonah's attention. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat, and the sailors are freaking out because they think they're going to drown, and they can't do anything. They go down and wake up Jonah and say, what's happening? And he says, it's my fault. This is my fault. I'm running from God. My God is the God of the, of the land and the sea. And he sent this storm because I'm running away from him. And the only way you're going to calm it down is to throw me in the, in the water. And they do. They throw him in the water and he's swallowed up by a big fish and he spends three days in the belly of a fish. And over here, if that's hard for you to get your mind around, you serve a God that raises people from the dead. So living in a fish is not really that hard for him. It's not the, that's not the hardest one you're believing. I guess I'll say it that way. So he's living in this fish for three days and he repents And then he's vomited out, which is disgusting, and he winds up in Nineveh. And he preaches, and they repent, and he's ticked because he hates them. And he wants them to suffer. And he says, God, this is why I didn't come. I knew that you were righteous, and I knew that you were merciful. And I knew that that you said that you would judge them, but if I preached and they repented, you wouldn't. I knew you would, and he's mad. And then the the, the book ends with God trying to show Jonah his own selfishness and self-centeredness and all those things, and we don't know if Jonah gets it. But for us, the point is, we've got a guy, Jonah, who's one of God's people, and he's on a boat, and his disobedience negatively affects everybody else on that boat. And we've got a guy, Paul, and he's one of God's people, and his obedience positively affects everyone else on that boat. Paul, God has graciously given you the lives of every man on this boat. Jonah, these guys are going to die if they don't throw you into the water. And so for all of us, You carry around within you the presence of God. And when you're living faithfully before him, his favor rests upon you. And that can't help but bless the people around you. It's just how it works. Again, you're not a rabbit's foot. You're not better than anyone else. 
But when you're living in the faithfully before the Lord, his favor rests upon you, and the people and the places where you go will be better for it. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they will be better for it. Whether you can see it or not, they will be better for it. Likewise, if you're a son or a daughter of God and you're resisting, or even worse, you're running away, your disobedience will negatively affect the people that you love and the places that you go. It can't help but do that. And so my question this morning with no guilt, are you Jonah or are you Paul? Because you're one or the other. If you're following Jesus, we're one or the other. We're either resisting and it's having a negative impact and maybe you can't draw a straight line. I probably can. Or you're obeying and you're living faithfully and people are experiencing the ripple effects of your obedience and the favor and the blessing of God on your life. Don't just I'm not talking materially, that's part of it, but that's a small part of it. Recognize the weight that you carry, that your presence changes things. You being in the room shifts the spiritual atmosphere because of who you're bringing in the room with you. I don't know how else to say that. There's a revelation there that we need to grab onto. Many of you need to grab because you don't see yourself that way. You see yourself as insignificant and unimportant. Nothing doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you go or doesn't or not. Doesn't matter if you say anything or not. That's not true. Grab on to the reality. One guy on a boat. It's you. You can be the one guy on the boat. Ten righteous people in a city. You're one of the ten. God responds to that. Let's pray. If that's a hard one for you to grab onto, you heard the words, but you don't believe it in your heart. I want you, just in your own heart, to begin to pray. God, you've got to show me the truth behind that. You've got to show me the truth. I pray, God, that you would let me. Now, I want you to pray this and recognize what you're asking. God, I want to feel the weight of your presence in my life. God, I want to feel the weight of your glory in my life. I want to know that I'm leaving spiritual footprints every time I take a step. I recognize I'm not better than anybody. But I carry within me the God who's better than everybody. God, would you speak? I'm thinking of the teenagers in the back. Do they know? Do they have a clue? The weight that they carry at 14 and 15 and 16 years old. God, would you show them? I'm thinking of Adults who've wrestled and struggled and feel insignificant and maybe feel pressed down in so many ways. Kind of muddling through life. God, would you show them the glory that rests upon them because they're your son or your daughter. And if every avenue in the world says you don't have influence, you don't matter, you're insignificant. God, could you, would you raise their eyes up that they could see 
from your perspective. The impact that they can have just by being present in a place. God, use our words, absolutely. Use our actions, absolutely. But God, my prayer for us today is that we would get just that one thing. Our presence matters. Because where we go, you go. God, if there are any Jonas in the room, would you bring conviction? If that's you, all you have to do is repent. That's it. God, I confess I'm resisting. I confess I'm running. I see the carnage in my own life and the life of those that I love. And I'm done. I'm turning around, God. Give me grace to walk in a new direction. I submit myself to you. things, the same response. You feel like you're in a storm, maybe not of your own choosing, your own making. You feel like you've been snake bit and you can't catch a break. You feel like there's a place where you're regularly operating that's just dark. You have everything you need in your heart. You have access to all that you need. So let's just open yourself to him. on the ministry team if you come forward y'all want prayer about anything we'll pray with you about anything you know but I would say those three you in a storm let us pray that God will get you where he wants you to go if you've been snake bit let us pray that God will preserve your life and see you through that do you feel like you live in a dark place in some area of your life let's pray for God to use you to influence that situation for you to recognize the glory that you carry with you